Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. John writes that after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Here's why. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot, remember chapter 17, who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, we haven't seen this crew for a while, way back in chapter 4, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God and sat on the throne and said, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, all those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord, God omnipotent, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. When we began the book of Revelation many months ago, some of you have been through the whole run, uh, I mentioned this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read, hear, and keep the words of this book. Now, listen, any book of the Bible you read, you'll be blessed, okay? It's like Popeye eating spinach. You will get stronger by reading any book in the Bible. And by the way, try Leviticus, try Numbers. You know, these were all written for our learning and growing, all scriptures inspired by God, right? But this book goes one step further, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed, and the, the condition of blessedness is to be full of joy, to be happy, to be in a state of ecstasy, Blessed is the person who reads, hears, and keeps the words of this book. Now, here's my lament after 35 years of studying this book. No one reads it. Uh, no one hears it because no one's preaching it. And no one is really living like these things are going to happen. And it's almost like the devil has pulled a sleight of hand on the church that, that revelation is irrelevant. And what we should talk about is our marriages and how to get good jobs and be good Christians. And all those things are true, but... There is a blessing in this book, and there, there are seven of them. Remember when we started, I said seven is the magic number in Revelation, seven churches, seven trumpets, seven vials. Um, there are seven beatitudes, seven blessings. We've come to the fourth one here. Blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it's wedding season, uh, in the world, it's wedding season at Calvary, it's April, and by the time June comes, many of us will be at weddings. We just finished our premarital class. We have 12 couples getting married this year at Calvary, and I get to do a bunch of them, and uh, I like weddings. They're joyful, it's new, it's spring, and there's this couple, and I meet the family, and it's just a wonderful experience. I'm looking forward to it. Some of these people I've known since they were kids in grammar school, so very exciting. One of the problems I have is I go to too many weddings, right? 
So there's weddings I have to do. Uh, there's weddings I do as a normal person. Because our church is large, I go to you know, extra weddings. My children are 21 to 35. All their friends are getting married. They were all in our youth group. So I go to too many weddings. My daughter's a wedding videographer. So a lot of times on my day off, if I'm watching sports or cleaning or gardening, she's editing videos and I'm hearing vows and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, uh, I go to too many weddings. When I get a wedding invitation, I cringe. Oh no, another wedding, what am I gonna do? And then if I find out there's a wedding and I didn't get an invitation, I cringe. Like somebody doesn't like me, I have FOMO, it's really bad. But um, weddings are strange, right? So in the West, we do them far differently than they do them in the East. Uh, because we're prosperous, we take all this money and we're trying to make it a magical, memorable, almost mythical day like Camelot, especially if you have a daughter, right? We're gonna pound all this money into this memorable day. And I have to tell you, I've done weddings that were $200,000 and I don't remember much. In fact, most of what I remember about weddings were things that were unplanned that no one thought would ever happen. I think I told you about this wedding. Um, my family of origin was relationally and emotionally challenged. I get tired of saying they were dysfunctional, so that's kind of a new way to say it. And uh, I was 14, and my sister was getting married, right? So typical Italian wedding, right? Set the over and under on Sinatra songs at about 10. Everybody's too loud, too drunk. Somebody's going to sing my way with a, with a light shade on their head. You know, it's just Italian wedding, right? Well, right in the middle of the wedding, a fight breaks out. And I don't mean two people. I mean, in a matter of 15 minutes, everybody, like 200 people are in a fist fight. So I'm 14 years old, I'm under a table watching this, and it looked like something out of a Wild West movie where a guy got thrown across the bar and all the shot glasses are flying up. My dad's in a tux pounding this guy on the head, right? Paid for this wedding, now he's pounding this guy in the head. Uh, paddy wagons show up, and uh, I'll never forget it. I can see it in my mind to this day. There's another wedding I'll never forget. I presided over this one. It was at a beautiful farm in Lancaster, an idyllic setting where this girl grew up on a farm and there was a meadow where she was gonna get married and a stream ran by and, and they had a carriage that looked like something from Cinderella and we were there for the rehearsal and I'm telling you, this, this was a farm from the 1800s. This was gonna be the most memorable wedding of all time. Problem is torrential rains came and it was delayed for two hours. To tell you how bad they were, most of the cars had to be tractor pulled at the end of this wedding out. This is no lie. The, the girls, the bridesmaids had white dresses and they had them pulled up to their knees with mud up to their knees holding high heels. And we're in a two hour delay and we said, okay, let's move it to the tent where the reception was. So everybody gets in there, it's hot, we're doing the wedding. I'm doing one of those things where I'm preaching and thinking about something else at the same time, because I can hear a rumbling. And in the car catalog of my mind, I'm like, there's a rumbling, I wonder what's going on. Well, there was a hill uh, in front of the tent, and right when I'm about to pronounce the man and wife, right before the vows, this water just smacks and gushes into the tent and just sweeps through the whole place. It was unbelievable, never forget it. However, the most amazing thing I've ever heard is from Pastor John Corson. He pastors out in Oregon, and they have an amphitheater somewhat like our sizzling summer set up outside. 
baptismal, flowers. So naturally in Oregon, they have a little nicer weather than we do. A lot of people want to get married in their amphitheater. So John's doing a wedding one day. It's a beautiful day, but it's hot. It's 97 degrees. And um, again, right before the vows, the, the bride, who's in a beautiful dress, but it's 97, feels like she's going to faint, but she doesn't tell anybody. And so she doesn't fall out right there. She starts backing up. True story, falls into the baptismal. <laughs> now, she was okay. They got her out, and you know they actually did the vows with all the mascara dripping down, and she's wet. Looked like something from a Johnny Damon movie, you know, and they finally get through the whole thing, and they found out later at the reception she was a brand new believer, and she had never been baptized. <laughs> so a lot of people think she might be the only people in person in church history who got baptized and married in the same day. <laughs> Revelation 19 has the most memorable wedding, and I hope you're all there. And nothing bad's going to happen, like I just explained. In fact, everything good's going to happen. Jesus talked about it. The prophets talked about it. It's written here in the Revelation. Uh, because we've all heard about this, I want to talk about where it is, when it is, and who's invited. Uh, where is this wedding? Look at verse 1 again. John says, after these things, that's a Greek word, metatel, it means there's a shift. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to the Lord our God. We're back in heaven. And uh, first thing I want to say about heaven, there's going to be a lot of people there. Every time in Revelation we see a scene in heaven, there is a crowd that can't be numbered. Now John's numbered the army that would come from the kings of the east through the Euphrates. He said that was 200 million. I'm not sure John knew if there was even 200 million people in the world. So he can at least get to that number. Here he says there's an innumerable company. Do you ever feel like our tribe is really small. Do you ever go through your week and think nobody's a Christian? That's one of the reasons you should come to church is to see there's more people like you. And sometimes you think, oh my gosh, nobody's a Christian. Nobody's saved. Nobody loves God. And every time you look in heaven, multitudes. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. So we're back in heaven. Now, do you remember the last time we were in heaven, what happened? There was silence in chapter 8 for half an hour. And that's pretty important because the first time we were in heaven in chapter 4, the whole company is there. The 24 elders, the redeemed from the Old and New Testament, the raptures happened. And we're all around the throne and there's thunderings and lightnings. And we're singing this chorus, you know, you have redeemed us by your blood. And there's celebration as there should be. And then all of a sudden, silence for an entire half an hour. As the seventh seal of God's judgment is opened, and the seventh seal opens up the trumpet judgments, and there's seven of those, and the seventh trumpet opens seven vials, and there's devastation and tribulation that Jesus said, if those days weren't short, no flesh would survive. And it's almost like the people in heaven are in shock and awe at the utter devastation and judgment that would happen. And we slog through all those chapters. You pat yourself on the back, we got through. And we're back in heaven, and everybody's there, and they're not singing a new song, and they're not singing a chorus. It's one word, Alleluia. This is the only time it appears in the Bible, by the way, in this form. This is the Greek transliteration of Hallelujah, which, by the way, is a universal word. You say Hallelujah, they might not know what it means in Hebrew, praise the Lord, but they know it means to rejoice. They know something good has happened. 
It's one word that condenses a thousand thoughts and emotions. Now, I don't think it's hallelujah like we might see at an extreme charismatic church. I don't think it's like, praise the Lord. I think it's like, praise the Lord. I think it's like, hallelujah. I think it's like this giant exhale. Why? Because God has just judged in chapter 17 and 18 the things of this world and there's just like a hallelujah. Uh, I remember when the 76ers won the championship in 1983. Uh, I've read the Daily News my whole life. Anybody know what the title was? Yeah, it's on the screen. Hallelujah. Exhale, like, oh my gosh, we really did it. Have you ever been expecting news? Like you went to the doctor and you might have cancer? Or you heard there's going to be layoffs and you're not sure if you're going to be one of them? Or maybe one of your kids got in trouble and it really looks like it's going to go south. And then the phone rings and it's, you don't have cancer. You didn't get laid off. Your kids are going to be okay. It's like, oh, praise the Lord. There's nothing else to say. Hallelujah. It's like this major exhale. There's going to be this major exhale in heaven because the judge of all the earth has done right. God has judged the world for everything man gave away in Eden for all the corruption, all the injustice. Chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, if you want to put it this way, is the history of the world. Sometimes when we look at the history of the world, we think of it as man's progress. It really isn't. Man's legacy on this world is war, deception, and injustice. If you're a history major, you know this is true. In fact, there was a um, Supreme Court justice who would read the paper every day at lunchtime. And he would start in the back and read the sports section and then read towards the front. One day, somebody walked up to him and said, oh my gosh, you're this brilliant man. Why are you starting with the sports section and reading it towards the front with all the politics and news of the world? He said, because I always want to start out with man's achievement before I get to man's failures, right? And then sports changed, and we got to read about all those problems now, right? So... Do you understand what's going on here? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Why? Just and true are your ways. God has judged this world. For every George Washington who has given away power, there's been 10 dictators who brought corruption. In one hour, God has put an end to man's religion, man's attempt to appease God, man's ability to rule over man. He's put an end to greed and corruption, and there is one giant hallelujah. Last week I read to you about, you could argue for a month of Sundays how it was Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus that really gave us Western civilization, that changed society so much that we live in what some people say is the greatest show on earth here in America. Russ Duthaud has written a book called Bad Religion, and he writes in his prologue, Nation of Heretics, he said, after the great crash of 2008, Americans awoke and saw their country, listen to this, the way anti-Americans have always seen it, spendthrift, decadent, and corrupt. The city on the hill has become a mismanaged empire, the land of self-reliance and buried in debt. Our political class has run up enormous deficits at home and entangled us in never-ending military operations overseas. Our financial elites 
have been exposed as reckless, self-deluded speculators who have gambled away the country's economic future and gone begging for a bailout. The whole mess has been made possible by middle America's relentless appetite, that's you and me, for bigger houses, bigger barns, bigger portfolios, bigger government programs, bigger everything, and damn the long-term costs. During the 2008 election season, the extraordinary unpopularity of George W. Bush made him the obvious scapegoat for these debacles, and the charisma of Barack Obama made him a convenient savior figure. By the fall of 2010, it was Obama's turn to take the blame, while the Tea Party offered a right-wing version of hope and change. But even as Americans turned the parties into and out of office, most of them understood that the rot ran deeper than the White House and Capitol Hill. And there were trends at work that couldn't be reversed by simply dispatching a more talented set of leaders to Washington. This has been man's problem from the beginning. Man ruling over man, and this is the best it's ever been. And God jumps in and judges these systems, and it's hallelujah. Oh, it's almost, oh, it's about time. Psalm 97 verse 1 says, when the Lord reigns, the earth rejoices. The reason they're rejoicing, listen to what they say, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And the grammar there, the correct grammar is, the Lord God omnipotent, ready, has begun to reign. It's just started. And some people think, well, wait a second, what about the cross? What about Easter? What about the resurrection? Isn't that when Jesus made an open spectacle of principalities and powers? Yes. Jesus came to bring salvation, but he's allowed evil men to rule until now. When he comes this time, he'll put an end to all this. And the Lord God omnipotent will begin to reign. And when we get to the millennium, I'll talk to you about the thousand years. And everybody looks at this and they say, Alleluia. Now, man has set the bar really low. He really has. You know, I just read you that, and yet the next political cycle, we're going to clamor for a leader, right? They're going to tell us the same old stories, same old promises, right? And, and some of them want to help, but they really just want to be powerful. They just want to be presidents, so or their you know, name is written in history. So nothing really going to change. The Lord God omnipotent longs to reign. But again, we set the bar low. If anybody will tell us the truth, anybody will lead us, anybody will promise a new day, anybody's genuine, we'll take it. That's why Israel's going to deceive, right? Jesus said, I came in my Father's name, you didn't believe me, there's coming one in his own name, him you'll believe, the Antichrist, the person we've been studying in Revelation. We set the bar too low. When God brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand, he wanted the, the, to be their God and Israel would be his people. That's why the tabernacle, that portable worship system, was in the middle of the 12 tribes. God wanted to be in the middle. But Israel looked around and, and, and the manna wasn't enough and the miracles weren't enough and, and the law wasn't enough and they said, we need a king, we need a man, we need a physical representative. We want to be like all the other nations. And God says, you don't want a king. And God gave them reasons why they didn't want a king. Here's what's funny. God didn't even want to be their king. Does everybody realize that? God didn't have a need for subjects. If God had a need for subjects, he would have created them. You, maybe you argue the angels are his subjects. But we're made in the image of God. God. God didn't want subjects. He had no interest in being a king. He wanted to be Lord, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. 
David comes along. David's a future king. But David's also a shepherd. And the light bulb goes on to David, and he's inspired, and he writes Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, brings me beside still waters, and this beautiful poem. And you think, oh, yeah, that's what God, you know, God's the shepherd and I'm the sheep. You know, Jesus, that picture of him with a lamb around his neck. And didn't even Jesus say he was the great shepherd? But I don't even think God had an interest in being our shepherd or at least having that relationship with us as a shepherd, what a sheep. I think the longing that God had is the greatest metaphor in the Bible, and it begins very early. And it's like un, un, any, it's unlike any other religious book. You open the Bible and you expect to see creation. In the beginning, God created the world. Okay, I get it, there's a beginning. But you'd almost never expect very early in the Bible to see a wedding. God takes a man takes a side out of him, puts it together. Therefore, a man's going to leave. His father and mother be joined to his wife. They're going to become one flesh. We say it at almost every wedding. And we look at that and we think, okay, God's going to build society on the pillar of the family, and we extrapolate all these things. But Paul comes along, and four times in the New Testament says, no, this is a picture, this is a metaphor of Christ and the church. And then there's this crazy book called the Song of Solomon. Uh, right in the you know, poetic books or the wisdom books of the scriptures, it was so erotic that uh, Jewish moms wouldn't let their boys read it, which means you're all going to go home and read it, and if I can get you to read it, and that's the only way, good. And I'm a believer in passion, and I think it's about human relationship, but i got to tell you, most commentators believe it's Christ and the church. Again, the marriage metaphor. And then we get to the New Testament, and we see that Paul says that God has espoused you to one master. It's wedding terminology. Uh, we find Jesus one day where uh, Pharisees came to him and said, you know, John, the Baptist disciples, they fast, they have all these spiritual disciplines. Your guys are always going to parties. What's going on here? And Jesus said, no one fasts while the bridegroom's here. Wow, that was code for, by the way, he was God. Because in Isaiah, it says, the Lord is your husband, the Lord is your maker. So when Jesus said he was the bridegroom, he was basically saying, look, I'm God. There's a coming a time when I'm not here when they'll fast. God never wanted to relate to his people as a king does to her subjects, nor a shepherd does to his sheep. God's ultimate plan was always for a relationship with mankind to be like a husband and a wife. That there would be intimacy and knowledge and knowing one writer said, no relationship on the earth, however close and fulfilling, can fully satisfy the hunger of the human heart for intimacy. Only God can meet these deep longings of our heart. One day, all of our loneliness and longing will be taken away. In one of the oldest and most beautiful pictures in all of scripture we read, for your husband is your maker, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, and he's called the God of all the earth, Isaiah 54, 5. And all through scripture, this metaphor rings true. And the book of Revelation, again, I don't know why anybody reads it, it completes the story. If we never Revelation, we don't know the end of the story. And the end of the story is as a bride meets its groom, we're gonna gather in the presence of God and it's gonna be a glorious, 
glorious time. Again, Paul said, I've espoused you to one husband. The Bible says the pure in heart will see God. But you know what it's going to be like to see God? It's going to be like when a groom looks at the bride walk up the aisle. Just for that brief and shining moment. And, and you know, there's a lot of stuff coming before her and there's stuff that happened, you know, previous and, and you know how weddings work. But for that one shining moment, you look at your bride. That's the way God looks at us. And we're going to look at him and it's going to be a glorious time. Where is this? It's in heaven. Now, the question is, when is it? Well, again, I've been teaching you Revelation as if it's in the future, and that's only one of four views. Maybe you need to figure that out. Some people say this is history. Some people said it happened in 70 AD. I think it's in the future. It's certainly after the rapture. It's certainly after these judgments. Uh, Jesus said many will come in that day from the east and the west and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's going to be cool. Uh, John uses this phrase, metatalda, which means uh, there's a switch. It's after these things. It's after the seven years of persecution. It's, to me, way into the future. But one of the beautiful things about the Bible is its cohesion. So think about this. John's writing this, right? But John wrote another book called The Gospel of John. Now, John's gospel is way different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. The synoptic writers all write about the end of the world. Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, right? Jesus, when's this going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? What's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the age? And then they all extrapolate on what Jesus said. John doesn't write about any of that. All he does is say, behold, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am you may be and I will come again. That's the whole of John's end time teaching. There's no Christmas story in John, Right? Instead, it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he dwelt among us, right? No genealogies in John. Nothing like the synoptics. John tells a story none of the other writers tell. He gives us seven miracles of Jesus, and he starts with one that no one talks about. And it's one of the most familiar, you all know it, and it happened at a wedding. It was in Cana of the Galilee. And weddings at that time were week-long celebrations. There would have been many family and friends there. And um, Mary comes to Jesus, and he says to her, they've run out of wine. Now, to run out of wine in that day was an embarrassment, but it was like the joy went out of the place. It was the elixir, right? It, it was a symbol of joy. And uh, she comes to Jesus, and, and, and I'm not sure why, right? Because it says she pondered who he was, and it wasn't like he was doing miracles, right? He hasn't started his ministry. And I don't buy into what people say that Jesus made, like, the plates levitate or when he was a kid, like, he'd make balls go in the air. Like, I don't believe any of that. But Mary knows enough to know he can do something about it. His answer is, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. Now, Mary's used to these things, right? Right? Like, Jesus says weird things nobody understands. <laughs> and her answer is, look, just do it, you know? <laughs> now, I always thought, okay, Jesus is saying, look, you, you know, I'm, I've got to go to Nazareth. I'm going to read the scroll there from Isaiah, and then ministry will get going, and I'll be tempted in the wilderness. He said, my hour has not come. He didn't mean the hour of his ministry. His hour was always the cross. His mission was to die. His hour was to die 
for the sins of the world. And basically what he was telling Mary is, Mary, my hour is not come. In other words, I can change water into wine. That's the easiest thing I can do. And I can bring temporary joy to man's situation. But the longing, eternal joy that I have come to bring will not happen at a wedding, but it will happen on a cross. And that's why at the last Passover, when he took the cup, he said, this is my blood that will be shed, not only for you, but all mankind. And as often as you do this, remembrance of me. And remember what he said, I will not drink of this till I drink it new with you in the kingdom. This is what he was talking about. This is where we're going to drink it, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where finally joy has come to man in his relationship to God. The final question is, who's invited? We read in verse 9, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we get the attire, which is interesting, right? Because when you get invited to a wedding, you should know the people there, and you should be dressed like you should be there, right? I remember Monica and I got invited to a wedding. We were 25 years old, never read the fine print, which was black tie only, or at least I didn't read it. I'm not even sure I knew what that meant at 25. She wore a blue terry cloth dress. I looked like a schlub, and uh, everybody's in tuxes and gowns, and we look like the wait staff, right? We just didn't look like we belonged. But what are the people at this going to look like? Look what it says. They're arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. The linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are actually good works people have done. They're not in heaven because they've done good works. These are good works they've done because God has transformed them. Because they've raised money for water is basic or charity water, not because that's getting them to heaven, but because of that transformation, now they long to do good works. The Bible talks a lot about rewards. The Bible talks a lot about what you sent ahead. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So many people have their treasure here, so many have sent it ahead, and that day you'll be wearing fine linen. You know, I look at this, the fine linen, we never see ourselves this way. We always use this phrase, we're so unworthy, which is okay, but one day you're going to be seen by God in a way that you've never seen yourself. And what's striking is when we looked at the judgment of the harlot in 17 and the judgment of Babylon in 18, that's the system we've all come out of. That's the call, come out of her. Come out of that fornication. I want you to think of sin this way. Sin is spiritual adultery. You know, God's not Santa Claus. He's not checking his list to see who's naughty or nice. That's not God. If you've been sold that bill of goods, go back to where you learned that and tell them they were wrong and they better change their tune. There's no such thing as a goody two-shoes. There's not, sin is spiritual adultery. Why? Because God is your husband. Look, I don't have to convince anybody I'm married. If you hung out with me for a day, you would know I'm married. You shouldn't have to convince anybody you're a Christian. Does that make sense? Because you're married. Sin really is spiritual adultery. If I cheat on my wife, I've broken that bond. That's what sin is. That's why many great minds have said, you know, serve God and go do what you like, as long as you're in relationship to him. The way you know that you're God's is you can't go a day without thinking about him. 
When you're driving, you might think of other things, but he's on your mind. You read about him, you contemplate it. He's taken over your being. It's kind of like the Trinity, right? Jesus prayed that great high priest prayer about the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Tim Keller said to glorify others means to unconsciously serve them. Not because we're getting anything out of it, just because of our love and appreciation for who they truly are. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are each centering on the others, adoring and serving them. And because the Father, Son, and Spirit are giving glory to one another, God is infinitely, profoundly happy. Think about this. If you find somebody you adore, someone for whom you would do anything, and you discover that person feels the same way about of you, does that feel good? Does that feel good? That's called falling in love, by the way. I want to do everything for this person, which could be a feeling, but oh my gosh, this person wants to do everything for me. It's what every song and movie and book and every longing has ever been about. That's what a relationship with God looks like. It's sublime, Keller said. That's what God has been enjoying for all eternity within the Trinity. The Father, Son, the Spirit, pouring love and joy, adoration to the other, each one serving the other. They are infinitely seeking one another's glory. And so God, and it's hard to say because God's not emotional, but they're infinitely happy. And God wants to bring us into that. Not as subjects, not as sheep, but he wants to bring us into that as a bride and a groom would experience. Everybody at this supper will be washed and purchased and blood-bought while we were sinners. Christ died for us. Everyone here will be a new creation. Who's invited? Everybody. In Revelation, Jesus said, I knock on the door of men's hearts. Whoever opens that door, my Father and I will come in. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And I will give him, out of his spirit, gushing rivers of water. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The invitation is given to everybody. Jesus told a story about a man who gave out invitations to a great feast, to something like a wedding. And he sent it out to all the related people. And that would have been Israel in, in the parable. And all the nobles and, and all the people that you would kind of put on your itinerary. And the servant comes back and he says, oh, how many are coming to my feast? No one. And he goes, all right, plan B. Go into the highways, the byways. Go to the halt, the blame, the, bl the blind, and compel them to come in. And here's the heart of God, that my house might be full. That's exactly what happened. Jesus came to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Invitations have gone out for 2,000 years. A lot of them thrown in the trash. In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, blind, blasphemous, brutal, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, denying the power thereof. In the last days, men will depart from the faith, heeding, seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, in the trash. But the halt, the blame, the blind, 
all be there. The most groundbreaking thing Jesus ever said was the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In some ways, he opened up the kingdom to everyone. That's part of that beatitude. Up until that time, only the rich could go into temples. Only the rich could be involved with the gods. Only the rich were a part of salvation. Jesus leveled the playing field and said, no, 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 no. The poor have a place in this kingdom. But then he said something else. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, the halt, the blind, the lame, they're not second-class citizens. They are people who understand their spiritual condition without God is negligent. These are the people who understand there's nothing getting them to heaven. There are no good works. These are people that would bow the knee and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a wonderful Savior. And I'm going to tell you, God's house is going to be full. This wedding's going to be packed. And it's going to be a celebration as we sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we sit around the throne. Again, Eastern weddings were different. There was an engagement. Normally your parents picked out your spouse when you were two. If they turned out to be Brad Pitt, you had it made. If it was Frankenstein, well, you lost out. At 15, there was the espousal, okay, or the betrothal, whatever one it was, where, you know, this is where Mary was with Joseph, by the way, in the Christmas story, right? It's binding. To break this was still divorce. That's why Joseph, so noble, he put her away secretly. And then there was finally the celebration where invitations would go out and the groom would go away and prepare a place, sound familiar, to take his bride. That's what Jesus has been doing all these years, waiting to take us home. I love that scene where Jesus looks at us and we're in fine linen. Because we don't see ourselves that way, at least I don't. John Orberg said, my mind may be obsessed with idols, my will may be enslaved by habits, and my body may be consumed with appetites but my soul will never find rest until it rests in God. We live in a world where people are numbing themselves, amusing themselves, entertaining themselves, lying to themselves. And there's a God who's given a grand invitation to a great feast one day where every tear will be wiped away. And guess what? Like the wedding at Cana, it's only the beginning. You know how that ends where, wow, he saved the best for last? Literally, that translation, he saved the best for now. And when you're at that marriage supper of the land, that's the Lord beginning to reign. Can you imagine what it's going to be like as we learn of his grace in the ages to come? If you don't know Christ this morning, you have an invitation but it's got to go 18 inches from your head to your heart where you acknowledge that God has to have all of you. Because if he doesn't have all of you, it's spiritual idolatry, it's spiritual adultery. He longs to be in relationship with you. He longs to love you and to know you as a bride and a groom would experience. So the next time you go to a wedding, don't sleep through the ceremony don't kill time waiting for the reception. Look around, 
and say to yourself, wow, what we're doing was written in a book 5,000 years ago, and we live on a planet where people in the highest institutions have no idea why we do this. God is the author of marriage, and he's the author of a reason because it points to something greater, something he's always longed to do in us. 